All right, let's uh, let's open in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another week. We thank you for this time that we have to come together to study, to learn more about you, to learn more about living our lives for you and through you. And we ask that you would bless this time that we have together. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, we are on week four. It's been four weeks already. Can you believe that? It's crazy. Week four. We started off week one. We talked about psychology and why psychology is not the best answer for the problems that you face, the sin that you face. We talked about the heart. What is it? What does it do? How does it work? Why do you have it? What's its chief function? The chief function of the heart is worship. Then the next week we talked about the idols of the heart. And the heart is always designed to worship. And when you're not worshiping the one true God, you're worshiping idols. And then last week we talked about, um, let's see if I can remember what we talked about last week. That'd be great. We talked about feelings and emotions. We talked about your conscience. And then we talked a little bit about depression. This week we're going to focus in on three things. Guilt, repentance, and forgiveness. And those are all three big topics, so we're not going to hit all of them as far as, as much as we can, but we're going to hit them as much as possible. We're going to start with guilt. And I want to start by reading a quote. This is from an unbeliever. He's not a Christian. Here's what he said. In all the laments and reproaches made by our seers and prophets, one misses any mention of sin, a word which used to be a veritable watchword of prophets, it was a word once, used, once in everyone's mind, but now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all of our troubles? Sin with an I in the middle? Is no one any longer guilty of anything? Guilty, perhaps, of a sin that could be repented and repaired and atoned for? Is it only that someone may be stupid or sick or criminal or asleep? Wrong things are being done, we know, but is no one responsible, no one answerable for these acts? Anxiety and depression we all acknowledge, and even vague feelings of guilt, but has no one committed any sins? Where indeed did sin go? What became of it? That's an unbeliever speaking about sin. And even an unbeliever can look at the world today and say, we don't talk about sin anymore. We don't mention it anymore, and it's not because sin doesn't exist anymore. It's because we want to, well, hopefully not we, but the world wants to engage in sin and enjoy their sin, but they don't want the natural consequences of sin. They don't want to experience the guilt of sin. Now, we need to understand what guilt is because we're going to experience it. You're going to have a feeling of it and we need to know how to deal with it. So let's have a biblical understanding of guilt. Let's define guilt this way. Guilt is a legal liability or culpability to punishment. When you are guilty, you are deserving of a punishment. When we sin, that sin incurs a punishment. Guilt is often experienced through a feeling an emotion that's the result of the fact that you are, in fact, guilty. But guilt is not just a feeling. Guilt is a fact. If you violate the law in 
Texas and you're found guilty, you are in fact guilty. You are liable for punishment. If you violate God's law, it's not just a feeling. You are in fact guilty and deserving of a punishment before God. It is a fact. The world wants to tell you it's false guilt. Remember Sigmund Freud? All guilt is false. That's an oxymoron. If you're guilty of a crime and you're due punishment, that can't be false. Usually what they're describing when they say it's false guilt is they're describing the feeling that you have. You did something and you regret doing it. Or you feel remorseful because you did something wrong. But you're not, in fact, culpable for it. When I was a little boy, I was trying to help my mom clear the, clear the table. And I had a stack of her plates, ceramic plates. And I tripped and I hit the floor, and then the plates hit the floor, and all the plates went into a million pieces. I wasn't guilty of anything. I was guilty of being a little kid. But I sure felt remorseful for it. That is not guilt. Guilt is a fact. The world wants their sin, but they don't want the guilt that comes with it. They don't want the liability that comes with it, and when they experience the emotion of it, they hate it. John MacArthur said this, Our culture has declared war on guilt. The very concept is considered medieval, obsolete, unproductive. People who trouble themselves with feelings of personal guilt are usually referred to therapists, whose task it is to boost their self-image. No one, after all, is supposed to feel guilty. Guilt is not conducive to dignity and self-esteem. Society encourages sin, but it will not tolerate the guilt sin produces. We want the sin, we just don't want the consequence. A lady named Ann Landers wrote an encyclopedia for self-help. Here's what she said about guilt. One of the most painful, self-mutilating, time- and energy-consuming exercises is the human experience of guilt. It can ruin your day or your week or your life if you let it. It turns up like a bad penny when you do something dishonest, hurtful, tacky, selfish, or rotten. Never mind that it was the result of ignorance, stupidity, laziness, thoughtlessness, weak flesh, or clay feet. You did wrong, and the guilt is killing you. Too bad. But be assured, the agony you feel is normal. Remember, guilt is a pollutant, and we don't need any more of it in the world. That's not a very biblical way to look at guilt. But that assumes that all guilt is nothing more than how you feel. It's nothing more than an emotion, and it should be done away with and dispensed as nothing more than a a feeling. But if it's not an emotion, if it is in fact a fact that you are in fact guilty, you can't just dispense with it. And we have a lot of ways of trying to get rid of guilt. One of the ways we try to get rid of guilt is we engage in more sin. Be honest, you've done this before. You fall into a sin, you feel horrible about it, and so you go and you try to medicate yourself by committing another sin because you believe it's going to make you feel better. Or you go back and you commit the same sin again, thinking that's going to make it better. Or they use chemicals. Psychology does this a lot. We talked about this last week when we talked about depression. They medicate the feeling. And the medication doesn't do anything for the fact that you're liable for a punishment. The medication only numbs your ability to feel the pain of it. Or they use other chemicals. Illicit drugs, narcotics, alcohol. There's a study that says 60% of alcoholics drink because they feel guilty. Blame shifting. We all know this one. 
If you have kids, you know this one. Who broke it? You did. Ezekiel 18, they had a parable. If you look in Ezekiel 18 too, there's a parable. And the children of Israel were saying, our father ate sour grapes, but our teeth are cut by it. And essentially what that means is, look, my dad ate some really nasty sour grapes, and I'm the one with a bad taste in my mouth. And what, there were, what they were saying is, my father sinned, and God is punishing me for his sin. And God's response is, you're not going to use that proverb anymore. I don't like it. If you sin, you will die. And if I'm punishing you, it's because you sinned. And he says, stop blaming other people for what you're doing. Or they uh, use self-esteem. Well, you just need to make the children feel better about themselves. You just need to affirm them, and then they'll behave, and they'll do what they're supposed to do, and they'll perform better in school. They did a study between American students and Korean students in math, and they gave the students a math test. At the beginning of the test, they asked the students to rate themselves on how good they are at math. And the Korean students rated themselves very lowly, and they said, we're not very good at math. And the American students, who had a lifetime of self-affirmation, they rated themselves very highly. You want to guess who did better on the math test? The Korean students did better on the math test. All that self-esteem and pride in themselves did not change the reality that they didn't understand math. Or self-gratification. We feel guilty, and so we just begin to indulge in everything we can, and we satisfy every one of our desires, hoping that by satisfying our desires, we'll somehow get rid of this bad feeling that we have. These are all unbiblical ways to deal with guilt, and I'm pretty sure you've seen someone engage in this, and you've probably engaged in some of these yourself at some point. The only biblical solution, the only way that you can actually deal with guilt is through our next topic. Repentance. Repentance. What is it? In the Old Testament, Hebrew word shuv literally means to turn back or to return. It was used in uh, Exodus 4 verse 20 when Moses returned back to Egypt. It's also translated as repent, Ezekiel 14, verse 6. He says, turn from your idols. There is a turning away from something, a turning back. In the New Testament, it's also pronounced metanoia. It means to repent, and it refers to a change of mind and a change of action. Repentance is mandatory. Christians today don't want to repent or so-called Christians today, they don't want to repent. You hear churches, it's all about making you feel better, it's all about giving you your desires, and repentance is nowhere involved. Someone who has not repented is not a Christian. It is mandatory. Luke 3.3, 3, John the Baptist came preaching a message of what? Repentance. 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 10. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. Repentance is a necessary, required part of salvation. If you did not repent, you are not a Christian. But it's not just a one and done. You don't just do that once. As Paul Washer said, I already done did that, preacher. It's not a one and done. You have to continue in repentance. 
Someone who's truly been converted will continue repenting throughout their life. Luke 17, verse 3, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. Notice he calls him your brother. This is a believer. And it says if they sin, well, they, and then they repent. Repentance is necessary, not only for conversion, it's necessary in the Christian walk. And a Christian who is not repenting is not a Christian. So what are the elements of repentance? What does it look like? The first is comprehension. You actually have to know that what you're doing is wrong. If you have a child and you spank the child, but they don't actually know what they did, is the spanking doing any good? If you're turning from something that you have no idea why you're turning from it, are you actually turning from it for the right reason? You have to actually understand what it is that you've done. You need to recognize it as sin, as Scripture defines it. Now, it's also here we need to say this. Just because someone is offended doesn't mean you've sinned. Their level of offense is not the standard of righteousness. Just because you're offended doesn't mean you've sinned. Uh, Dr. Street give this, gave this example. Uh, a wife might be offended by her husband's ugly tie, but wearing an ugly tie is not a sin and he has no need to repent of it. So the first one is comprehending. That's the first element. You have to understand it's a sin, and you have to be able to recognize it from Scripture as sin. Second, confession. Confession. Confession comes from a word, homologeo. It's made up of two words. Homo means the same, legeo means to say. So when we're talking about confession, we're not talking about sitting in a little box telling some guy in robes what you've done wrong. That's a medieval concept that was developed later. To confess doesn't necessarily mean to go and tell someone else about what you've done, even though that is a necessary part. Confession begins with you, and it begins with your conversation with God and you saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it, to speak about it in the same way. When you talk to little kids and they've done something wrong, you ask them, what happened at the vase? Well, the ball hit it. You notice how he doesn't want to confess what he did here? How did the ball hit it? Well, it bounced off the wall and hit the vase. Well, how did it bounce off the wall? He's avoiding the conversation. He doesn't want to admit it. If he was truly confessing, he would tell you, I threw the ball and it hit the vase because I have bad aim. We all did it when we were kids, come on, right? But we do the same thing in our sin. We, we want to try to confess something, but we don't actually want to say what it is. Well, I told a little white lie. I kind of bent the truth a little bit. Or I didn't steal from my employer. I reappropriated those funds. We have to speak about it in the same way God speaks about it. The final component is choosing. Willfully resolving to never again repeat that sin. I, I brought a prop today. Where's my prop? Here we go. All right. We have a Snickers bar. Now, I want you to assume for a minute that this Snickers bar is sinful. 
because it's sinfully delicious. Okay? <laughs> it's sinful. This is my sin. I'm going to show you what repentance is not, and I'm going to show you what repentance is. We're going to use a Snickers bar. Some people think that repentance is, well, I really love this Snickers bar, but pastor came and told me this is sinful, and so I can't have this anymore. Do you see the problem here? I'm only putting the Snickers bar down because he's sitting there watching. My actions are intended only to satisfy some outward display of righteousness. I'm not actually changing. My heart hasn't changed towards the Snickers bar. I still love this thing. And I do. Okay? My attitude has not changed. My heart has not changed. When we talked about the heart, we said it begins where? In the heart. Your fight with sin begins there. If your attitude does not change towards the sin, you haven't actually begun to repent of it. You need to be convinced, according to Scripture, that what you have done is wrong. If you're unwilling to confess it, you may not actually understand it. You have to begin in the heart. True repentance is not denying yourself something that you love. True repentance is having a change of heart where you go from loving this sin to looking at this as the most disgusting thing you've ever seen and you want to get away from it and go wash your hands just because you ever touched it. That's where true repentance happens. It happens in the heart. It happens by convincing your mind and your heart that what you have done and the sin that you have is wrong and that God hates it. And because he hates it, you begin to hate it. That's where true repentance occurs. It has some effects. It makes some changes in your life. First, it changes your behavior. If it doesn't change your behavior, you haven't actually done anything. Someone who says, well, I've repented of that, but their behavior doesn't change. They continue on in the same sin and the same pattern, and there's no change whatsoever. They haven't actually repented. They've just told you what you wanted to hear. There's no regret. There's no regret. You don't go back to that Snickers bar and say, man, I, man, I really wish I could have this again. This is just painful. I mean, a couple months without it, but now it's going on a couple years. I just I really like to go back and have some caramel deliciousness, right? <laughs> I, I just, I want it so bad. It's like Lot's wife in Genesis. She's told, leave the city. The city is corrupt where it's going to be destroyed. And so she leaves. She takes her body out of the city, and then she gets out, and where's her heart? It's still back in the city, and she turns around wanting to go back. True repentance does not result in someone wanting to go back to their sin, wanting to go back to what they were doing before. It also results in restitution. The word means to set things right. If you have sinned against someone else, let's say you've stolen money from someone else, the desire is to restore that person, to set it right. What was the guy's name? He was the tax collector. Was it Zacchaeus? He said, I will return to them fourfold what I have taken from them. 
Someone who's truly repentant is willing to do whatever they can to restore that person that they have offended, that they have sinned against. It's a, it's a, it's a result of true repentance. Reconciliation. A truly repentant person will do whatever they can to restore not just the property that was lost, but to restore the relationship that has been damaged. You've lost the trust of this person. Now you're willing to do whatever you can to restore that trust. You want the relationship to go on. You want it to be improved. You want to get back to where you were before the sin and better. That's true repentance. Sorrow. It's kind of a tricky one. You'll remember David when he sinned. Well, there's weeping, there's crying. Those are usually good things to see when someone is guilty of a sin. But we need to be careful because you can fake that. People can fake that. So emotions, yes, we want to see them. They're usually good, but we shouldn't judge all of their repentance based on their emotion. Here's the other side of that. I have a family member. We've gone to several funerals together. I know he was hurting during those funerals. I know for a fact he was hurting. He didn't squirt one tear. Not a single one. I'm over there bawling like a baby, and he's rock solid. But just because he doesn't express those emotions the same way I do doesn't mean he's not hurting. And the same is true in repentance. Just because someone isn't bowling doesn't mean they're not actually repentant. Okay? So emotions are hard to judge that way. So the question then becomes, well, how do I change? We've talked about the heart, but how do I change? How do I go from doing these horrible things to not doing them anymore? We need to understand that we are creatures of habit. God has given us this to help improve our lives. Most of you can tie your shoe and have a conversation at the same time. And when you get in the car to go to the work, you don't have to think about the process of getting in the car, putting on the seatbelt, starting the engine, pushing the gas pedal, moving. You just do it instinctively, and you can do it while having a conversation. That is because you have built a habit. You develop these habits over time. It takes a while for your body and your mind to learn these things. And because you can learn good things like tying a shoe and starting a car, you can also learn sinful habits. That's why when someone who gets saved later in life, you usually have to give them a little bit of time to break some of these habits. You get saved at age 40, you have 40 years of sinful habits that you have to break. It's not impossible, but you just need to understand, it's 40 years you're going to have to break through. And God's going to give you the grace, but it's going to take some work on your part. So, how do we do this? Put on, put off. Jay Adams said this, God gave man a marvelous capacity that we call habit. Whenever one does something long enough, it just becomes a part of him. And we have to take those old habits, we have to put them off, and then we have to replace them with new habits. If you don't replace it with a new habit, then you just go right back to the old habit and you keep doing what you're doing before. If you brought your Bibles, if you go to Ephesians chapter 4, he, the, there are several passages that discuss this, but this is probably the uh, most clear. Everybody got there before I did. Okay. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22. 
that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Notice your former manner of life, and what are you supposed to do with it? You're supposed to get rid of it. You're supposed to lay it aside. The verb there is in the active tense. This is something you and I are responsible for doing. It's not something that you just sit back and say, Lord, would you please get this out of my life? Yes, you ask him for help, but it is something that you and I are responsible for doing. We are responsible for getting rid of that old habit. Someone has a habit of cursing. They are responsible for going back and doing everything they can to stop that habit. But you can't just stop the habit. Well, let me, I got ahead of myself. Now, how many of you have had one of these sins and you feel terrible about it? Okay, I hope everyone does. Okay. Now, how many of you have committed yourself to repentance and then all of a sudden you feel this renewed sense of life, this new energy, this new desire for holiness, and you go from not reading your Bible to you're listening to sermons every three seconds. You just can't get enough. How many of you have had that experience? A couple of you. Okay. Look at the next verse. Ephesians 4.23. And that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. This is in the passive This is done to you. When you commit to repent, when you commit to turning from sin, when you resolve in your heart that I am no longer going to do this and you have become convinced that this needs to leave your life, God then enables and equips you to do it and he gives you the grace necessary to do it. And you have this renewed sense of vitality and spiritual life. And then what do you do with this new vitality and spiritual life? Next verse. And put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You take off the old habit, I'm not going to curse anymore. And you put on the new habit. I'm going to say things that are edifying to people. I'm going to use godly language. I'm going to have someone who holds me accountable. And I'm going to hold myself accountable. And you replace bad habits with good habits. Does that make sense? Questions on that? What happens when you slip back? I mean, you're trying to repent and you slip back. I mean, where does that put you? Put you in the same place you were when you started. If you fall back into the sin, understand your, your spirit is still trapped in sinful flesh. And the death of Christ pays for past, present, and future sins. And so you go right back to where you were. And you go back to Christ, and you remember the gospel, and you remember that Christ paid for that sin, and you go right back into repentance, and you keep pushing. Does that answer the question? Yeah, you're going to have days where you fall back. You're going to have days where you fall into a sin, and you're like, I thought I was done with this. I thought this was gone. I thought I was glorified already. What's going on here? It's going to happen. You have to remember Christ paid for all of your sins. And you have to remember what is the biblical response to the guilt that you feel. How do we respond to these emotions? How do we respond to how we're feeling at that point? 
We respond through repentance. That's how you deal with the guilt there. Don't let, don't let your feelings determine how you behave. You respond with repentance. Here's a question. When does a liar cease being a liar? When he dies? When he stops lying? According to Paul, you stop being a liar when you start telling the truth. Because if all you do is put off the lie, you haven't actually become truthful, have you? I'm just not going to say the lie anymore. And that's the example. He's going to give examples here. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth. You put aside the lie and you begin to tell the truth. When does a thief stop being a thief? He answers that question. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. He stops being a thief when he stops stealing and he begins to work with his own hands and produce an income for himself. Look at uh, verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. There it is. Stop the filthy, disgusting talk. What do you do instead? If I can find my spot. But only such a word as is good for edification. So instead of the the coarse jesting and the unwholesome or rotten speech, you replace it with edifying speech that benefits the people who hear. All right. That's repentance. Do we have any questions on repentance before we move to the next section? Comments? Yes, sir. It's a good way to... He's got a great point. If you're going back to the same sins and you're engaging in the same sin over and over again, you might want to look at your environment. If you have a problem with cursing, look at the people around you. Are they cursing all the time? Are you filling your mind with movies and TV shows that are full of cursing? If you're a former drug user and you're finding that you're about to relapse? Are you watching movies that depict drug use? Are you hanging around people that use drugs? Look at your environment. Jesus said the way to conquer sin is what? Amputate. If your, sin, if your hand causes you sin, cut it off. Your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. He's not recommending self-mutilation. The idea here is if those things lead you back to sin, it would be better that you got rid of them than to hold on to him and continue sinning. Anyone else? All right. Let's go to forgiveness. To forgive. What is forgiveness? To forgive means to send away or 
to release. When we're talking about sin, to forgive means to pardon. And God has made a promise. Forgiveness is a promise. God promised you that he would forgive your sins. Jeremiah 31, verse 34. For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. Forgiveness is a promise of pardon. When you forgive someone, you are promising to pardon them. When God forgives you, he promises to pardon you. What is the model of our forgiveness? It's the model that God has given us. We are to forgive in the same way that God forgives. Ephesians 4 Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. When someone says, well, would you forgive me? And you go, well, it's not very Christ-like. And our standard for how we forgive is given to us by God himself. Colossians 3, verse 13, Bearing with one another and forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. Now, oftentimes we talk about forgiveness, and you've probably heard this one. Forgiving means forgetting. If you really forgive someone, you're going to forget what they did to you. And they justify this teaching with Bible verses. But first of all, no, that's not true. Forgetting does not mean forgiving. That's not what it means. You find someone who's the victim of a violent crime, go ahead and tell them you need to forget about what's happened to you. It's probably not going to work. Someone who's been the victim of abuse, forget what happened to you. And they justify it with stuff like this, Isaiah 43, 25, and I will not remember your sins. And they say, see, God forgets. He forgot about your sin. He no longer remembers it anymore. Do you forget about your sin? Do you forget about the sin that other people have done to you? If God forgot about your sin and you didn't, He's no longer omniscient. You know something God doesn't know. This is an active, willful position of God where he says, I will not actively remember this against you, a.k.a. I'm not going to hold it against you. I know it's there, but I'm not going to use it and judge you with it. This is a willful act on God's part saying, I am no longer going to pay attention to your sin. It's still there, but I'm not going to pay attention to it. When you forgive, you are making three promises. Three promises. The first one, I will not remind you of the sin. How many of you had someone that they said, well, I forgive you, and then like six months later, you remember that time, what you did to me? Kind of kills the whole I forgive you thing, doesn't it? Now, I know there's a caveat on there that says, except when it's absolutely necessary for your own good. And try as I might, I could not come up with an example. But before you bring up someone's sin that you said you have forgiven, 
you really need to check that you're doing it for their good and not so you can win an argument. Are you really bringing... Yes? An example would be if they're about to commit that sin again. There you go. And you're helping to warn them not to go into that area or that with those people or whatever. Good example. Then you would bring it back up to help them. Okay, so using it to help them avoid sin. But if you're going to bring it up, make sure it's for a right reason. Make sure you're actually doing it for their good and not for your own. Second promise. I will not mention it to anyone else unless it would be absolutely necessary. This one I, can come, I was able to come up with an example. There are some times where you confess a sin and they have to mention it to somebody else. They have to report it to the police department. They have to report it to a hospital there's just no way around it. You go into any, any decent church that does counseling, they're going to tell you, you tell me you've hurt someone, you tell me you've committed a felony, I'm going to report it. Okay, And you should as well if someone confesses that to you. But I will not mention it to anybody else. Mike tells me he's going to forgive me, and then he goes and tells someone else all the things that I did. That's not really forgiveness. He's still using that against me. I will not allow my mind to dwell on it. This is where controlling your thought life and being responsible for what's going on in your heart comes into play. Have you ever done this? You, you get into a fight with someone and then you're thinking about it all day and the more you think about it, the more angry you become and you're having an argument with the person but they're not even there. Have you ever done that? Beyond, yeah, okay. You can't do that anymore. That's not the way to resolve the problem. That only makes it harder. You need to control your thought life. Right? Proverbs 4.23, for from it spring the, the uh, flow the springs of life. You have to stop doing that. You cannot dwell on the sin anymore. You have to put it off. Those are the three promises that you make. When you forgive someone, that's the promise you make. Those are the promises God has made to you when he says, I'm going to forgive you. And when you forgive someone else, you make the exact same promises. Breaking a promise. You forgive someone and then you go back on that. That is sinful. It's dishonest. If you're not willing to make those promises, don't say you've forgiven them. Don't kid yourself. Don't lie to yourself. Don't lie to God. Scripture commands us to forgive. So if we think, well, we can, evade, we can avoid this problem and just not forgive at all and never forgive, well, that's also sinful. You are commanded to forgive. All right, I need two volunteers. I need someone to read Luke 17, verses 3 and 4. Who would like to read that? Autumn? And I need someone else to read another verse. I think it's Mark eleven twenty-five. Yeah, Mark eleven twenty-five. Okay, so here we have a picture of someone sins. They come to you, they tell you, I've sinned against you, you're to forgive. Notice the person came to you and said, I've sinned. Okay, who can read Mark 11, verse 25? Gary? 
So now we have a situation where the person doesn't come to you, and it says if that happens, forgive them. So which one is it? Do they need to come to us, or do we just forgive them? The answer to that is in two different types of forgiveness. There is an attitude of forgiveness, and there is a transaction of forgiveness. This will help clear it up, okay? Let's talk about the attitude of forgiveness. This is required before you can ever begin to forgive anyone. It's the attitude. It's what's going on in the heart. This is where forgiveness begins. It starts in the heart. Your heart should not be harboring anger, resentment, bitterness, or ill will towards the person. They've sinned against you. Your heart should be in a position that says, I want to forgive this person. I want the best for this person. We are commanded, we are commanded to love others. That includes your enemies. You're commanded, love your enemies, right? We're also commanded to be kind and gracious. These are attitudes that you're going to have in your heart. These are required for forgiveness to happen. Our hearts should be like God's. Look at uh, Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Now that makes you feel good when you think about God being that way. But is that the condition of our hearts when someone sins against us? And that phrase there, all who call upon you, it's a Hebrew idiom. It means all who repent. People who turn to God are met with a loving, gracious heart that is ready to forgive. The attitude of forgiveness is a promise made in the heart that you will forgive. It has nothing to do with what you say to that person. It has nothing to do with how you interact with them. It all starts and stops in your heart. This is done in prayer. Luke 23, 34, But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Notice he didn't say, Your sins are forgiven. He had done that before. He's praying that they would be forgiven. Matthew six twelve, And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. It happens in prayer. The attitude of forgiveness can be seen in your prayers for that person. When the person sins against you, is this what your prayer sounds like for them? Father, you know what has happened between so-and-so and me. Help me not to be angry or bitter at him, nor to seek revenge in any way, but, hold me, uh, but help me to love him and desire only his good. Please work in his heart and bring him to repentance so that we can have a reconciled relationship. Use me in any way you can to help him. Does that sound like our prayers when someone sins against us? Now, I'm not recommending that be a prayer that you just go and slavishly repeat. Don't do that. Okay? But that is a model of how your prayers for this person should sound. And if you're not praying that way, you probably don't have an attitude of repentance. If you're praying Psalm 109, let his children be fatherless and let another take his position, you're probably on the wrong side here. Okay? You shouldn't be praying the imprecatory psalms. Okay? That's the attitude of forgiveness. It happens in the heart. It happens on the inside in prayer. 
Now, let's look at the transaction of forgiveness. This is what happens when we verbally go and speak to the person, and we talk to them. This is conditional. The transaction of forgiveness is conditional. We're commanded to forgive as God forgives. But doesn't God forgive unconditionally? No, he doesn't. His forgiveness is conditional. Acts 2.38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. What is the condition of forgiveness? Repentance. Repentance. Nobody who repent, who everyone who refuses to repent will not be forgiven. Luke 3, 3, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The transaction that occurs between you and another person, we're not talking about your heart, we're talking about the transaction. That transaction is conditional. It is based on repentance. If they refuse to repent, you do not offer them forgiveness verbally. You forgive them in your heart, but that, that benefit, that bonus of you telling them, I forgive you, is conditioned on repentance. And you say, well, doesn't that affect the relationship? Yes, it does. Let me ask you this. When you refuse to repent of your sin, does it affect your relationship with God? Absolutely it does. David held in his sins in Psalm 51.8. He said, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Sounds like it affected their relationship. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of your salvation. That transactional forgiveness was dependent upon his repentance and his turning to God and repenting. Transaction also includes confrontation. Not argument, confrontation confronting someone about their sin. Luke 17, 3, we've already read it. Be on guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. This confrontation requires that your heart already has the attitude of forgiveness, that you're going to him with a sincere desire that you want to forgive him or her, whoever it is. If the attitude isn't there, this is just you wanting to confront someone and you're just going to go over there and sin. You have to have the attitude. How often should you be willing to conduct this transaction of forgiveness? How many times should you be willing to forgive? And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Seven times a day, he does the exact same thing over and over and over. And every time he comes back, he says, I repent. I, I, I didn't mean to do that. I, I sinned against you. You were to forgive. That's not easy. But technically, if you follow the first three promises, the fourth time he does it should be like the first. You're not thinking about the other ones. You're not holding him against them. Uh, if you look in... Luke 17, real quick. There's a, a parable he gives, and it's connected to this. It's 
start in uh, verse 6. And the Lord said, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Which of you, having a sleigh plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately and sit down to eat? But will he not say to him, prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. When the slave comes in from his long day at work, and the master doesn't say, hey, come sit down, eat, let me serve you. But the master says, look, I know you've been working all day, but um, I'm hungry. Fix the meal, prepare it, serve it. The master doesn't turn around and say, oh man, thank you so much. You're such a wonderful little slave. Because the slave was only doing what was expected of him. And Jesus responds to their self-righteousness and says, if I ask you to forgive seven times, why do you think you're too good for it? Haven't I done the same for you? Why would you be self-righteous and think this didn't apply to you? Okay, some issues to discuss about forgiveness. Con confront versus covering. Well, I don't really want to confront him about it. I'm just going to cover that in love. I'm just going to cover that sin in love. And they quote 1 Peter uh, 4.8, love covers a multitude of sin. But the reality is sin is covered in the Bible through repentance and forgiveness, which includes a confrontation, going to them and saying, you have sinned. Now, when you confront someone, let's, when you confront someone, it's not, hey, how dare you? Look what you, you go to them and you say, look, I believe that you have done this to me, but I'm willing to hear what you have to say about it. You give grace that you might be wrong. But the confrontation is necessary. You have to confront the sin. Apologizing versus asking forgiveness. You know where apology comes from? It comes from a word that means to give a defense. And whenever you hear people give an apology, it sounds like this. Well, I'm sorry that you were offended at what I said. Doesn't sound like much of an apology. Or the little boy says, well... I'm sorry my brother ran into my fist. That's not an apology. That is a defense of what he's done. He's defending his sin. Nowhere in the scriptures are we commanded to say, I'm sorry. Dr. Street says he goes to parenting conferences and he starts off with, I teach my kids never to say sorry. And the idea there is, all you're going to do is give a defense anyway. What you should be doing is when you go and you're, instead of apologizing, you should be asking for forgiveness for what you've done. So you can avoid defending it. Or forgiving God. You just need to forgive God. That's your problem. You're just angry at God. You need to forgive him. That's blasphemy. 
God has nothing that he needs to be forgiven for. And for you to say, well, you just need to forgive God, all you're trying to do is make the person feel better, but who are you offending in the process? God does not need to be forgiven. That is not the problem. Forgiving unbelievers. How do we forgive an unbeliever? Well, we can't give them transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is conditional, isn't it? It's based on repentance. Can an unbeliever who's not being converted repent? They're not capable. So you can give them the attitude of forgiveness. You can forgive them in your heart. But the the moment where they come to you and say, well, I have sinned against you. I have done something wrong. Forgive me. What's that an opportunity for you to do? That's an opportunity for the gospel. That's an opportunity for you to turn around and say, yes, you may have done something against me, but your sin was far greater against God, and you have offended God, and that opens the door right there for you to give an unbeliever the gospel. Forgiving the deceased. Family member passes away, they've sinned against you horribly, and you never got to settle it. Here's the good news. You can settle it in your heart. The attitude of forgiveness. You forgive in prayer. They don't need to be there. They can move to Japan. They can move to the North Pole or Antarctica. You can still forgive. Or forgiving yourself. This one's really bad. You just need to forgive yourself. You ever heard that? I just need to forgive myself. Well, don't you know God has forgiven you? Yeah, I know that. Well, don't you know I have forgiven you for it? Yeah, I know that, but I just can't forgive myself. You know what that is? Self-righteousness. My standard is so high that I can't forgive myself. God's standard, he can forgive. You you might be able to forgive. My, My standard is so high, I can't forgive myself. That's self righteousness. It's not about forgiving yourself. How should we forgive? Last three. We forgive immediately. Immediately. It's not, well, let me give it a couple days so I can be mad. You should be working on forgiving immediately. Repeatedly. He comes to you and says, I repent. You're to believe him and forgive. But he keeps doing it. Okay, that's why we have a church. That's why you have elders, and that's why we have church discipline. But you are commanded to listen to what he says and forgive. And lavishly. Not holding stuff back. This isn't going to affect the relationship. I'm going to show as much love and grace to this person as I can as I forgive. And isn't that what we want them to do for us? Isn't that what we ask God to do for us? We should do it for them. All right. Questions? Comments? You can send. Uh, I've sinned against somebody and I want and, and I ask for forgiveness and I really wanted forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And, and then I do, then I have that remorse, you know, where I really feel bad about it. And I've gone back and I said, you know, um, you know I'm sorry, forgive me. And they tell me, okay, you, I've, I've already there's that inside working thing and I don't I don't really believe it's a, a standard would you say uh, how did you say that just a few minutes ago where 
can't forgive yourself and mm -hmm. self-righteous. It's not self-righteousness. It is a true sorrow mm -hmm. of, of, of what you did. Yeah. Um, if you can't hear Mike saying that he's gone to someone confess sin and they've forgiven him, but there's still a part of him that he's still sorrowful over the sin even after he has repented. And my response to that would be, in those situations, you need to spend more time in Scripture looking at the Gospel and looking at Christ. Because it, it, you may not be describing self-righteousness, but you may be describing a lack of faith, a lack of understanding in the Gospel and who Christ is. But here, here's the thing, it's not, it's not an insult. Because everyone in this room has the same problem. And when I have trouble getting over the remorse, it's because I don't understand the gospel well enough. And I'm not looking at Christ enough. And I've become too introspective. And what I need to do is stop looking at me and start looking at him. So I, I don't mean that to be insulting or putting down. That is true for everybody in the world. If you ever get to the point where you are overrun by guilt and your repentance isn't helping you, you need to turn and look at Christ more because you're a little bit too introspective. Introspection is good. We're called to examine ourselves, but it shouldn't get to the point where you're beating yourself up. The gospel is supposed to be a joy to you, and there's never a time when Christ should look better to you than immediately after you have sinned and you have confessed and repented of it. Does that answer the question? My answer to that would be, her question is, what do you say when someone holds on to a little bit of that remorse to keep them from doing it again? Is that natural? I think it's natural. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I think it is natural. Um, what I would say is the, the proper solution there is not to hold on to remorse so you don't do it again. We are to be motivated by love for Christ. And so we shouldn't be holding on to remorse, but that forgiveness that he gives in the gospel should lead us to love him more and desire to do more according to the way he has called us to do it. Does that answer the question? Would it be more about you know, let go, so it would be more intentional in putting on the good, the good thing. Be more intentional toward that than the let yeah. go. Yeah, great point. Be intentional about putting off the old and putting on the new. We should be motivated by love for Christ. And if we're failing in our, or in our ability to find joy after we've sinned, we just need to spend some more time looking at Christ and looking at the gospel and allowing that to grow our love for Christ. There, there's an element of regret that stays with you that you even did something like that. Maybe that's yeah. uh, my point. I mean, I'm pretty horrified at some of the things I've done. That, that's a part of it. That, that hor being horrified that you did something is a part of it. But that should not be the dominant thing in your Christian walk. You should be motivated by love because eventually that, that horror of what you did will wear off. It'll go away. Time will remove it. And it won't become as horrible anymore. And if that's what you're holding on to to try to make sure you stay pure, it's not going to last. 
you have to have something that'll last, and that is Christ in the gospel. His love will last. And if, you have, if you're motivated by love for Christ in this, that will last. Great point. Yeah. You feel guilty. You act on how you feel, so you go and do another sin to medicate yourself. And that makes you do another sin to medicate yourself. And you feel even worse. And, and that's that downward spiral that leads right back into depression. So we are out of time. If you have any more questions, I'm here afterwards. You can ask. So let's close in prayer. Father, we... We thank you again for this time that we've had. We thank you for the forgiveness that you have given to us in Christ. And what you call us to do, the forgiveness that you call us to to grant to others, is not an easy thing to do. And this walk that we have is not an easy one to live. And we just ask that you would give us grace, that Christ would be more glorious and more beautiful and that we would look to him and in love serve him and show that love to others through our forgiveness. We ask that you bless our time of worship this morning. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.